0: I invite you to turn in your Bibles to uh, the book of 1 John. We'll look at 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 11 this morning. Let's hear then uh, this portion of God's word to us this day. Beloved, let us love one another. and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. One of the earliest building blocks of language is the definition of terms. Little ones learn that certain complex sound sequences go with, uh, correspond with certain objects, and we enjoy watching them learn those things. And as as learning progresses, our vocabulary increases. The average adult active vocabulary I've read is uh, about twenty-five thousand words. Uh, that sounds like a lot, but actually, your mind is is so complex that uh, you're capable of thoughts much more complicated and nuanced than can be conveyed with just 25,000 words. And so uh, many, perhaps most of the words that we use have more than one meaning. And we figure out or try to figure out from context uh, which words we should use and what the meaning is of the words that people are using when they speak to us. Now, applying that to Scripture, then... This means that an important aspect of listening to and reading God's word is discovering the correct definitions of the English words that we're reading in Scripture. Uh, Some English words used in translating the Bible are not part of our common speech, and so we need to uh, learn the the correct meaning for those words. Uh, For instance, the word propitiation in our text today we don't use that often from day to day, and and so we need to learn that definition. Uh, usually, most people have to learn that definition when they read it in scripture and and remember it. But it's it's true even of words that are are common, that that are familiar to us in everyday speech. That when we read those same words in scripture, we want to be careful that we're we're correctly interpreting them that we've got the right definition for those words so that that we're thinking about we're thinking about that word in the same way that the writer of scripture was inspired to use that word and that uh, certainly is true of the english word love which we've seen is a key word in this little letter of first john he uses it over and over again uh, in fact there, there's a lot of repetition in, in the letter uh, we'd be tempted to think well maybe we should uh, go on to some other subject but he keeps circling back to this what would seem a simple concept of loving one another but but i think if we if we really try to think god's thoughts after him in this this writing we're, we're going to have to be careful about how we define love and not let the way this word is used in our culture influence the way we're we're, uh, interpreting it here. So let's just sort of review how he uses the word love in his his letter and then hone in on the key message of of the verses that I read just a few minutes ago here. John first mentions love as the commandment of God uh, back in chapter 1. He sets this command in the context of God's revelation of himself as light. God is light, he writes in chapter 1, verse 5, and in him is no darkness at all. And we've seen that, of course, John's using light and darkness here as metaphors, as as literary comparisons. God is light in the sense that he is righteousness and he is truth. So to be apart, of, apart from him, to be separated from him is to be In the darkness, it is to be in sin, self-deception, and lying. And so the prerequisite or requirement that precedes the command to love, as John uses it there in chapter 1, is that we be in fellowship, as he says, in communion with God. Remember, that's a very strong word that means close connection. To be in fellowship with God, to have his truth, his word living in us, he says. Being in union with him in this way, then, which is also to have him living in us, of course, is experienced through confession of our sins, trusting in his forgiveness, and, and believing that he cleanses us. So, so that's the background to that command to love that he gives Here it is in 1 John chapter 1. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, since it's 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 true that only those who are in union with God, as he describes here, by faith, may be said to truly know him, to know him in a personal sense, to have a personal relationship with him. The evidence of this true knowing of God, that, that we're in personal relationship with him, that comes from his living in us, is that we walk in the light. That we live in a manner consistent with this truth in righteousness. And remember, John equates that with keeping God's commands. You're walking in the light if you keep his commands. And then he sums up God's commands uh, as as the command to love. And the accomplished goal of the love of God in his children is that his children reflect that. So, so you see there, there's an organic connection here between our relationship with God and this command to love. Hey, in, in a real sense, this is a command not given to unbelievers. Okay, because, based on John's reasoning here, they'd be incapable of it. We would be expecting something from them that they cannot, they cannot give. So all that's background, his understanding. So he goes on in 1 John uh, chapter 2. By this, we know that we have come to know him. We have that personal relationship with him if we keep his commands. And then he goes on to say a little bit later, whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. Now, remember, he doesn't mean that we become perfect then. What he's doing is seeing it from God's perspective, that God loves his people and the completion of his work in them is that they begin to emulate that love see, the focus is on what God is doing there and the work that he is completing in us. And so in whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected by this. We may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him, lives in him, resides in him, ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And that forms then the basis for this Old slash new commandment. I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you've had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. It's very important that we keep the, the progression of thought that John gives us here. Okay, we were in spirit, the spiritual darkness of sin, but the light of God shone into our hearts and made known to us the good news, the message of salvation from sin and death to eternal life through Jesus Christ. If you've seen the light of God in that spiritual sense is revelation of himself in the Son of God, you could be absolutely certain you did not produce that light yourself. Okay, that comes from outside us. We are in darkness. Darkness cannot create light. But God's light is shown into our hearts. Atheists and humanists may vainly imagine that something can come out of nothing, but we know that's not true. And so we in darkness cannot produce light. That's something that God produces in us. As Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born of the Spirit in order to see and enter the kingdom of God. Like the blowing of the wind that you hear but but cannot see, the Spirit brings about your spiritual birth. And then you are able to believe in Jesus as the Son of God and enjoy life in him. So you're made alive by the Spirit. And this commandment, then, is, in a sense, the exercise of that life, the living out of that life. The practice of righteousness, the doing of good, is the evidence that shows who are God's children. It's not, and it cannot be, that sinners do good and then God extends his grace to them. No, they... You can't cause yourself to be born physically. You can't cause yourself to be born spiritually. It'd be like a baby conceiving itself in his or her mother's womb or a dead corpse resuscitating itself. Since righteousness is of God and from God, it is a work of God's spirit in his children. So he says in chapter 3, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Nor is the one who does not love, there's our key term, his brother. For this is the message you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. So, so you see the, the progression of thought, you see the connection there between what God has done and then the love that we're to exercise by faith. Okay, always keep that... In mind, it's very tempting for us to fall back into that mindset that says, well, I have to come up with this myself. If I love God, he will love me. He's not, he's not like a human being. He doesn't love that way. Now, in John, First John 3, 16 through 18, he gives us a precise definition of God's love. Here it is, by this we know love, or in this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And since... This love is a Christ-like love. He obviously saw his, his allusions to Christ there. This love arises out of belief in him, out of faith in him and a relationship of faith with him. So John says in 1 John 3, 23, this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another just as he has commanded us. See how he's connecting faith and love there? You can't have the one without the other. Now, that's the background, then, to our text. And let's look more directly, then, at verse 7. Appropriately, the apostle begins this uh, section by addressing his readers as beloved. We don't use that term that much anymore, but we do use the term often loved ones. So that might communicate to you the idea a little bit better. He's addressing them as loved ones. My loved ones, he's saying. And, and, and of course, that expresses his love for them. We see that, that affection, that, that, that regard, that love that John has for the people to whom he's writing all the way through the letter. But I think there's subtly something else going on here. Okay, because, because those to whom he's writing, those who are believers are loved not just by, God, by John, they're loved by God. And I think that there's a little subtle reference to that here, and he's going to emphasize that idea uh, that we are loved by God. So, so read, it, read it that way. You, you didn't know the Apostle John, okay? But if you're in Christ, he's writing to you. He's saying to you, loved one. Our loved ones as a congregation. So so receive it that way. Uh, That's the basis then. We've labored this point, I know. That's the basis for the command. You are loved, so you love. So he gives the command, and notice he includes himself in the command as well. He doesn't say, Love, you love one another. Although we see that command, obviously, in a number of places. But he says, let us love one another. He's, he's putting himself with us in this. This is, this is a command for all God's people. Now, now, remember, he is not saying, let us like one another. Okay? Or let us feel attracted to one another. Or let us have warm feelings toward one another. Don't read this like that, okay? John is commanding love, and so he doesn't have in mind here a natural disposition. You you can't command your feelings, your emotions. They just arise spontaneously within you. But he's commanding us to do something here. So it's not that idea of love in the sense of an emotional warmth towards somebody, or a physical attraction, or... Or any of those other ideas that are associated with, with love often in our, in our culture. He's commanding here something that, that is a choice. Okay? We determine to do this. It's an act of our will to do this. Hence, he can, he can give us a command to do it. And we've seen already that, that what's being commanded here is a self-sacrificing love. We've already read him mentioning laying down our lives for the brothers. That's an image of self-sacrifice, giving of ourselves without expectation of return, doing good without an external prompting. All that's wrapped up in this command. Now, he adds to the command there in our text a statement, and this is important, that provides both the source and the reason for doing this command. Okay? Look at the next, next expression here. Uh, whoever loves has been... Uh, let me back up. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Love is of God, or some translations say love is from God, so he is its origin. It, this kind of love has its origin in God, not in human beings. It's an important distinction for us to keep in mind. It's, he, he's, talking about, he's talking about an attribute of God, a characteristic of God. We've been looking at the attributes of God in uh, our Bible study on Wednesday evenings, and, and love is one of the attributes of God. It's one of his characteristics. So it has its origin in him not in us. The kind of love that the apostle has been speaking of here is an attribute, a characteristic of the triune God. The three persons of the Trinity enjoy the perfection of love in divine being. That's why he will say later, God is love, because God in himself, as three persons in one being, experiences and is love. Now, now obviously, that is a holy love. It's not tainted by any selfish, selfish emotions, any any self selfish uh, needs or wants or desires. It's a, it's a completely in harmony with all his other attributes. So it's a love that is just, and his justice is loving. Okay, it's a love that is merciful, and his mercy is loving. That there's a. There's a harmony, there's a wholeness to all God's attributes. So, so love encompasses all of these. And since love is an attribute of God, then the only source of the love that, that John is commanding here, if we're taking his definition, the only source then is going to be God himself, right? Where else can one find a holy love, a love without sin that arises out of a sinless character? So John applies this truth both positively and negatively. Everyone who loves is born of God, there's the positive side, and knows God. He who does not love does not know God. So you catch what he's saying there. To love with godly love, we must have been born of God and know him. That is being in personal relationship with him. So as God brings you into relationship with him, he pours his love into your heart, and then you have that love to express to others. He's the source. Now, this also gives us the reason, the motive for the love. Love is of God, leads us to recognize that God's, in God's love we discover the motive or reason for loving one another. Experiencing the love of God ourselves becomes the motive for expressing that love to others. We'll come back to that a little bit later. Now in verses 9 and 10, we read the apostles' description of God's love that inspires love in us. First note... That little phrase, toward, or among us. The love of God is not an abstract idea or concept. It's not a philosophical thing. So John goes to an event in history, in time and space. Okay? Among us, toward us. It's not in personal regard, extended in a generic sense. It doesn't just, it's not sort of just a diffuse love. Uh, Rather, the Father sent the Son to redeem a specific people upon whom he had set his affection. Jesus says this in John chapter 6, verses 37 through 40, All that the Father gives me will, will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And so Jesus says, for those given him by the Father, he lays down his life. John 10, verses 14 through 16. I am the good shepherd. I know my own those the Father has given him, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold, that is not of the Jews. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. So this love, John goes on to say, was extended by God's free will alone. It's not that we love God and then he loved us. In fact, we were dead in sin, and we were totally incapable of loving God. We were without love for God. And truth be told, we had no loveliness in and of ourselves. Strictly speaking, there is no good reason for the triune God to love us. We might even go so far as to say there is every reason for God not to love us, for there was nothing in us that God needed or wanted. There's no way that he would be completed somehow by loving us, and in fact, it would actually cost him to love us. And so John's description calls our attention to the, that cost with his reference to the Father's sending of the Son. You see that in in our text. And it's interesting the way it's phrased in the original language here. It says the Father has sent the Son, his Son, his only Son, the only one begotten, that is the only one possessing his nature. The Son was sent by the Father, John says there in our text, into the world. And that reminds us that he's coming into the realm of Satan, where he would know the humbling of obedience, the rejection and abuse of sinners, and the suffering for sin greater than that known by any sinner. The cost ultimately is the very life of the Son, who is himself God. And it's here that John uses that word propitiation that we mentioned before. The Son is sent by the Father to be the propitiation for the sins of his people, and the Spirit applies this propitiation to them so that they might be saved. The whole Trinity is involved in this. And to propitiate means to turn away wrath from those who deserve it. Okay, there's a party that deserves punishment, and that punishment is deflected, as it were. It is turned away, and so the Son... For the Son to be the propitiation, that means that he's the one that turned away the wrath that should have been on us. And how does he turn away that wrath? Well, he turns away that wrath by taking it upon himself. And that's what he's wrestling with in the Garden of Gethsemane, isn't it? The cup that he speaks of in his prayer to the Father there in the Garden of Gethsemane is the cup of God's wrath that he is going to drain to the dregs for his people. Remember that word propitiation because it's a wonderful image to help you understand what God has done for you. It's it's as if Jesus is the only thing, the only one who stands between you and the punishment that you deserve. And, and, And he's the only one that possibly could do that as well, isn't he? And not only that, his... His standing in your stead, His propitiation is fully sufficient. You don't add anything to His propitiatory work. Okay? So He takes it all for you. He saves you from the punishment, from the hell that you would deserve. That's what John's talking about here when he says God sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, Verse 11, he goes back and uses that word again, loved ones, my loved ones. See that? Here's the logical conclusion for everything that he said so far. Here's the logical conclusion. If God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. Think about that for a moment. God has given you a gift of infinite value. Infinite value. Surely that means you ought to listen to him when he gives you a command, right? How can we refuse him when he has freely given us everything in Christ? We've received everything in Christ, Scripture says. We have all that we need. For lasting joy and peace. How can we refuse when he tells us to give something? Namely our obedience. And in addition, this command is good for us. Right? He's not commanding us something that's bad for us here. And he would have a right to command whatever he wants. But his commands are actually good. That's why the psalmist talks so much about delighting in God's law, because His law is good for us. His command to you to love one another is good for you. In fact, it's the best possible thing for you. If you could have any gift in the world, if you had this, it it would be the best thing. It would be the perfect thing for you. We can add to that, that because you've been created in the image of God... That this command to love is the perfect fulfillment of who you were created to be, right you were created as a creature to find your fulfillment in imaging god that that's the epitome of what it is to be a human being, and here's the way you can do it okay by loving one another. It fulfills us. Why would you want to miss out on that which is most fulfilling to you. And we could go on to say that, that this obedience, that obedience to this command, will bring the greatest joy. So not only will it bring the greatest fulfillment for you, it will bring the greatest joy for you. A lasting joy that this world cannot, cannot give. Why would you resist following the way to eternal joy? Why would you say I, I don't want? I don't want lasting joy. Here's the way to it, and, and here's the last thing I'll mention, and perhaps, perhaps the most important in terms of encouraging us. God has poured His love into your hearts, so He's given you what you need to fulfill this command. He's commanded for you, something that is good for you, something that's fulfilling for you, something that brings you lasting joy, and he's given you what you need to do, the command, because he's poured his love into your hearts. Why? Why would we fail to use it? This is the love of God. Well, the answer to why we don't do it, of course, is because Well, that's the way of self-sacrifice, and we rebel against that, don't we? Christ-like love is taking the role of a servant, remember he said to his disciples. Serving rather than seeking to have others serve us, it means that we count others more significant than ourselves, as as, uh, Paul says in Philippians, and look out for their interest. To love one another truly, it's necessary that each of us take ourselves out of the center of our lives. And we are so comfortable being the center of our lives, aren't we? It means submitting our wills to the will of God. These are all difficult to do in day-to-day life. But John gives us, I think, a valuable, in, a valuable means to encouraging this. And, and this is where I want to close. Notice what John does not focus on when he commands us to love. There are two things I see that he does not focus on. One is he does not say, love one another and then concentrate our attention on the others. Perhaps telling us, reminding us how much people around us need love or, or how, how people desire love or or perhaps even deserve love, as is conveyed often in advertisements for various humanitarian, humanitarian groups. You're not going to discover godly love as a way of life by focusing on other people. I think that's why he doesn't focus on it here. Why? Because that's inevitably going to bring you to think, to, to focus in on your thoughts and feelings towards those other people. And, uh, and that means some of them are just going to look more appealing than others. You know, I, I have no problem loving my grandchildren, even when they're bad. <laughs> but there are some people with stuff to love. And, and so if we're trying to love by focusing on the people that we're commanded to love, it's, it's going to be difficult for us to pull this off but neither does John tell us to focus inwardly on ourselves. Okay, he doesn't give us this command, love one another, and then say, okay, you need to analyze your own Mm -hmm. motives. You need to put yourself under a microscope. You need to to reform yourself. He doesn't say you need to love yourself, so then you can love others. Uh, He doesn't on the other hand, tell you to punish yourself uh, in order to get you to love others. And he certainly doesn't tell us that if we simply exert enough willpower, we can do this. So he doesn't focus outward on who we're to love. He doesn't tell us to focus inward on ourselves to try to sort of generate this love. What does he focus on? Well, you have seen it already, I'm sure. John's perspective is focused on on where, and I want to leave your thoughts here on this passage. It's on God's revealing himself in Jesus Christ. See in our text where he says, in this, in this, and then he says something, in this, or here is love, he says, God sent the Son, his Son, the one and only Son who is himself God, to be the propitiation for our sins, to turn away from us the godly wrath that we justly deserved, that wrath that was due to us, remember. Instead, God poured that wrath out upon his Son, and the Son drained the cup of God's wrath against our sin to the dregs, and the Spirit of God applied that dreadful act to our benefit, causing us to be born again, made alive in Christ, And poured into our hearts, not wrath, but the gracious, merciful, inexhaustible love of the triune God. If you become captivated by that vision that John has given us, if you become captivated by the love of God for you, you're going to love one another. Let's pray. Only Father, human words, of course, cannot adequately describe the love that you have shown to us in Jesus Christ, our Lord. So we pray, Lord, that you would, would help us to grow in our understanding of this. Um, may, may we be captivated, as John so obviously is, captivated by this vision of your love for your people in Jesus Christ, by all that you have done for us to make us your people. And, and as, as we understand that love better, and as we experience, as we recognize that love poured into our hearts more fully, enable us then to love one another and, and in a sense, become your instruments for pouring your love into the hearts of one another in jesus name we pray amen